0: This programme was produced at and first aired on MPR, Manawatu People's Radio, with support from New Zealand on air. Kapai Irarangi Temotu, MPR. If you enjoy this MPR podcast, please consider subscribing. Our podcasts are available on all major podcasting platforms Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, as well as the AccessMedia.nz app. On Tuesday the 13th of September, the Palmerston North City Library played host to the Crime After Crime Tour, a conversation with three of the world's finest crime writers, Val McDermott, Michael Robotham and Rotorua-born J.P. Pomare. NPR supported the event by providing the sound system and also recorded it so that you can hear it now.
1: Kia ora koutou, ko It's a real pleasure to welcome you this very special evening with these very special writers. Hare mai. And kia ora to you three crime writers. I think of you as Toru on tour. So kia ora to Toru. Um, So it's customary to start these sorts of events by introducing the speakers um, and introducing the writers. Um, listing their accolades, talking about their various books, giving a parted biography, and so on. But if it's okay with you, I'm actually going to skip that part. I think we all know who we are here for. Um, if we t- start listing accolades, we'll be here all night. So um, if you don't mind, I'm going to skip that part and just go straight into it. But I do want to introduce the newest books which we will be speaking about. So um, we'll be touching on J.P. Pomeroy's book, The Wrong Woman, which is um, his newest book. Lying Beside You, Michael's latest book. And I actually have two of Val's books here because they both feel very new to me. Thank you, Michael. 1989 and 1979, which came out last year, but for me still feels fairly new. So these are the new books, and I think then, without any further introduction, I'm going to just launch straight into it. So I had prepared, and I actually sent you, which we hadn't discussed, some rather earnest questions... Around crime writing and and, um, writing in general. And having listened to some interviews and read a little bit more about you, I've kind of ditched those. um, Because one of the things that I heard from those interviews, and so on, the thing that came out more than anything else for me, I think, is just how funny all three of you are. And um, how funny. No pressure. (laughs) No pressure, no pressure. But I was really interested in this whether you think that. Humor there is something about humor that you bring to crime writing, and um, that as people who are interested in humor you 're attracted to it, or is that just wrong altogether? Am I on the wrong, wrong angle altogether?
2: Well, I think um, people who do this what kind of work for real, uh, police officers, uh, paramedics, fire officers the way that they deal with it, and journalists too, uh, is the way that they deal with the terrible things that they have to contend with. Mm-hmm is to make terrible jokes, really tasteless, horrible, black jokes. And that's, for them, what releases the tension. Mm-hmm. And in a funny kind of way, it's the same thing with a crime novel. If you, if you have something in that, that kind of lifts the tension, it means that uh, maybe the reader doesn't feel quite so much pressure from the story you're telling. And also the culture I come from in Scotland is that we have this black humour that laces our everyday lives. And so for me, this is just a natural part of the storytelling process.
3: No, and I agree. And I think the other great reason humour is important, um, for me anyway, is that if you're going to take readers into quite dark territory and you're going to ratchet up the tension to the point where... You know, you know, it's that sort of jump-scare moment that you see in films where suddenly it's the cat, though, that jumps out, but you know that there's something worse around the next corner. Humour is something that allows the reader to relax, breathe, and then you can slowly begin to ratchet up the tension again. And you do need, I think, uh, the best writing and suspenseful writing is it does have that ebb and flow where you are slowly building each, each, each peak of tension is getting a little bit higher and, um, but humour I find is, is one of the best ways to to, um, to do that and, and I, look I, I shouldn't quote one of my favourite lines but I have I, I do, I don't I mean this doesn't happen very often but I, I have a line that I always remember that when I, uh, it's in a book called Bomb Proof and I have a character called Vincent Ruiz who was three times married but he still has sex with his third ex-wife. They have a sort of sex with benefits arrangement. And in the book he refers to the sex is so good that even the neighbours have a cigarette afterwards. <laughs> but that's the sort of thing that will just allow people to relax and then you'll take them into dark places.
4: Yeah.
2: Very
3: proud of that line, aren't you, Mike?
2: I, I love that line.
4: <laughs> Oh, you've heard it before? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think Kiwis have a. We have this really understated um, sense of humour, and Australians have to be much more forceful about it. And I find Kiwis, you don't realise you, you, someone's taking the piss out of you. You just have no idea. And you might realise a little bit later. And it's sort of like that of the characters, I find sometimes. You want, you want it to be an in joke with the reader that the character's oblivious. You know, in the same way when you watch The Office, they're just sort of oblivious. Um, And the other thing is, I I was saying this last night, you know, people go to a comedy show and a comedian stands up, and that's the hardest job in the world, because everyone expects to laugh, you know, everyone expects them to be funny, whereas no one expects us to be funny, no one expects our books to be funny, because they're crime novels and they're dark. So I actually think we've got an opportunity to be funny, because you can catch readers off guard a little bit as well. Whereas that wouldn't happen unless they were, you know, if it, if it was a book that you were going into it expecting it to be funny. You don't have that opportunity to surprise and delight readers in that way.
2: And I think it only works because it's incidental. We don't sit down and say, I'm going to write a funny book. I mean, some people do try to, to write comic crime. Uh, and I'm bound to say I don't find it very funny. Um, you know, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't work. As, 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 as a sort of sub genre, if you like. Um, so I think it only works when it becomes part of a darker scenario. Yeah. And, I,
3: and it's got to be, yeah, because in the moment you try to, and it's like you know reading Kathy Lett, where it's a pun every second sort of word, <laughs> it's a pun. I mean, it just, in the end, you get irritated by that. So trying to be funny constantly would not work. It's just the occasional occasional good one-liner. I think, I think you're allowed one pun in your entire literary career.
4: That's, that should be the rules. should teach that. At, when you do a creative writing programme, that's what they put on the board first, just so you know. It's like, you know, supposedly you're only allowed one dream sequence in your entire career. I think it should be one pun.
2: I think one dream sequence is one dream sequence too many. <laughs>
4: We were talking about dreams last night. Yeah, all, yeah. I had a dream about... Oh, a here we go. <laughs> <laughs> I had a dream about... Oh, gone. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a story for another time.
1: <laughs> and then he woke up. Um, <laughs> so um, you mentioned dark places and dark territory. And actually, if you don't mind, I have a quote in my line... Of, my, uh, of Robothams, um, if I can just pull out my line. Um, this is a line from, from the newest book. It says, um, and, and the, the, the character who, um, those of you who may not know, is a kind of psycholo- a forensic psychologist, I guess. Um, and he says, this is what I do now. I investigate violent and suspicious deaths. I'm a criminal profiler and expert on human behavior. The worst of it, not the best. The sociopaths and psychopaths, the outliers, the mavericks, the devious, and the unhinged. And I wondered whether this might be a quote that describes some of you in your work. (laughs) (laughs) I investigate violent and suspicious deaths. I'm a criminal profiler and expert on human behavior.
3: Why do you ask?
1: (laughs) (laughs) are the people
3: he investigates, actually.
1: (laughs) Do you need to be an expert on human behaviour?
2: I think all writers of fiction should aim to be experts on human behaviour of all sorts. Um, When you're writing a novel, you have to get under people's skin, but you don't just get under the skin of the the protagonist, the character you're supposed to identify with and, and, and to perhaps like or admire. You have to be able to get under the skin of everyone in the book. If you're going to write a good book, you have to know the backstory for your characters—you have to know what motivates them, and you have to understand that and empathise with it. So, I mean, for for me, my entire career has been about trying to to understand how people do the things they do and why they do the things they do. Uh, and really, the, I think at the heart of all good fiction is character. Mm-hmm. That's what drives the story. That's what drives the suspense. It's it's being invested in the fate of these characters. And I've I've often said, "There's a car goes over a cliff. So what?" Mm-hmm. But if you, you're thinking about the, if you care about the person who's in the car, you either like them or you don't like them or you want to see them get their comeuppance, or you care about the people who are on the beach underneath the cliff they've just driven on. <laughs> then it's suspenseful. Then it's terrifying. Then it then it gets your heart beating, uh, and that's what matters. It's getting under the skin of character. So we all have to be uh, experts, not just in abnormal psychology, but in if few what you might loosely call normal psychology. <laughs>
4: mm. And I
2: think. You're
4: exactly right. I think to to add to that's the the plausibility factor. Even if you create this great character, um, people want some sort of trace. You know, they want to find the um, where that behaviour came from. So often in crime novels, we look into the past of our characters and we find all sorts of not oft, not always, but often um, trauma or, or sort of complex family dynamics and relationships and stuff. And that's all. You know that's psychology. That's what you learn when you become a psychologist is to explore these things and to try to root out the source of um, you know whatever behavioural issues you might have. So um, I think it is it goes hand in hand with all fiction a a certain um, proficiency of psychology. But certainly I think with crime fiction because our characters are clearly pretty messed up as well. Mm -hmm. I
3: mean, in my case, because I write. I mean, with all of us, you know, I know between, not all of us, because I can't speak for, 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 you know, others on the stage, but I write mostly in the first person. And I try to inhabit, as Fowl said, inhabit the skin of those characters, whether in the case of In, in Lying Beside You, it's either Cyrus Haven, forensic psychologist, or Evie Cormac, a very troubled young woman. And... You know, it's funny when you talk. Actors often talk about the fact of um, inhabiting the skin of their character, and they they will they'll question themselves, saying, "What does my character want out of this scene?" You know, mm-hmm. what what's their motivation? You know, um, and I find when I'm writing fiction, I treat it much the same way in terms of these characters live and breathe in my imagination. It's funny. I think only once or twice in my career have I ever written from the point of first person point of view of the villain. And um, particularly in a book called Shatter, which was it was a very a very evil evil villain. It's a book that my wife would only read during the daylight, and she said afterwards we'd never be invited to dinner again because <laughs> no one would have a sick bastard like me in their house. <laughs> um, but I remember when I was writing the scenes from the villain's point of view and the first person and describing what he was doing, I would I traumatized myself, and said, so I would come in from. And I'd have had this scalding hot shower and I would curl up in bed mm-hmm. and I'd want to get the voice out of my head. Okay. Um, and I, just, and I, I vowed after that I would not write from a villain's point of view again. I have, but <laughs> not for a while. We've uh, invited to dinner again, though, by Oh yeah. That what, I, that, what gets to me is there's so many people come up to me and say, that's my their favourite book, and I just think, you are a sick, sick puppy. <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, you didn't have people coming and saying, I see a bit of myself in that.
3: <laughs> oh no. no
2: People only ever see themselves in the good characters they, You know, When you write a character that's, that's particularly engaging Or particularly adept at what they do That's when people go, that's based on me, isn't it? And you just smile sweetly and say, of course darling, of course <laughs>
1: Um, You spoke about the first person point of view and actually that's that's something that I found particularly interesting because um, I think with all of you, the the way that you control how and when information is revealed to the readers is um, really important and the first person point of view and the shifting first person point of view I think is uh, interesting in that so you know, I think that Josh, you um, shift between uh, in this book, between Reed and Ishana if I remember, and you shift as you said between Evie and um, Cyrus. Uh, Cyrus and val, your books at there 's a kind of close third on Ali and a close third on Daniel, I think in thousand nine hundred and seventy nine mm. um, so that shifting point of view, and perhaps um, yeah how do you find that that 's a useful tool is that yeah, yeah.
2: It's a way of telling, I mean, for me, it always comes down to, the structure always comes down to how I'm going to tell this story. Mm -hmm. Um, I I wrote a series of of private eye novels in the 1990s, which are classic private eye style of first person narrative. So the the issues that you have there is the reader always knows what the detective knows at the same time as they Mm -hmm. know it, and you have to find a way to maintain a, a, a sense of. Not For the reader, knowing something that the detective doesn't know, and that's very difficult to do when you're writing from the eye point of view all the time, but it's the nature of those novels that that's how they get written. So with other novels, uh, it comes down to uh, how, how you tell the story, where, where, you, where you place the narrative eye, if you like, mm-hmm. um, and sometimes you just you, you keep close... On one character through the book, although it might be in the third person, and other times you're moving between characters all the time, moving between time periods sometimes, mm-hmm. and that it always for me starts off with what's what do I, what's the structure I need to tell this story.
4: Yeah, I think on the same. I think narrative structure and perspective come quite early on because that determines yeah exactly what's you know if you've got a character that <coughs> is. Um, is just close enough to the action, but doesn't have all the pieces, Um, which is probably why I don't write cops. One, there's that kind of, you have to get the details quite right procedurally, but two, they get so much information, um, you know, and I I, I, I sort of like that distance and keeping the reader at arm's length. Um, I've written noise in first person. I've tried to write third person, Um, and I guess I'm a bit like Mike on that. I find, uh, yes, uh, probably... A sort of comfort in um, going along with just this one or two characters and, and sort of just seeing the world through their eyes and sort of following them around with a camera at times mm-hmm. um, and I think that you can kind of control all these big narrative threads you're trying to weave into it through one single lens where I think I'd have this kind of decision paralysis if I was thinking of if it was third person even if it was third person close where I direct the the reader's gaze, you know, where, where, what do I show them? If you can show them almost anything, omniscient um, perspective terrifies me because it's just endless possibilities. Whereas if you're with these characters, it forces you to consider um, the narrative in a, in, a, in a much more structured way because you're imagining your characters have to be here here, and this is how you can kind of drip feed information as well.
3: Yeah, it makes it more difficult though in the sense that everything has to happen, as Val said, everything has to happen Within hearing or within sight of your, your first person narrator. You can't, you know, unless Shahal and Coburn just suddenly drop out of first person <laughs> and, 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 and 50 miles away have the bad guys meet or something like that. I mean, I'm one of those things, people, that if I start in first person, you know, it'll stay there. But um, So it does create plotting difficulties, you know. Um, um, for me, it, I, you know, my background was in, you know, as with I as a journalist, but then I spent 10 years as a ghostwriter, and I, I ghostwrote 15 autobiographies mm-hmm. for people. That it's, it's their autobiography, and so my job was to capture their voice. Mm-hmm. It was in the eye, the first person. And I just became very, very comfortable in, in, in writing that way. And, um, and when I sat down to write my first fiction, it, it was just very natural for me to write first person
1: yeah um, that 's really interesting and very helpful for teachers and um, I, I think that a lot of what've uh, you know, heard you will speak about is really particularly helpful for teachers of creative writing and I heard you mention um, Val uh, writers uh, as thieves and um, you know as stealing stealing from other writers, which is something I think those who um, teach creative writing often you know, tell the students we thieves, we steal from each other, we steal techniques and so on. So I'm interested, maybe I could start with you, Michael, which I hope is not unfair to put you in the way... But to ask what you would steal from these two, from if you... <laughs> oh, my
3: God. <laughs> so, shall <should> I... <laughs> um, oh, Josh, I just think, Josh, he, he... he. All of his novels have had this wonderful, these wonderful concepts behind them, high concepts behind them. But he manages to... I mean, the thing is, strange confession to make as a crime um, writer is I hate plotting. Absolutely, I don't plot, I, I'm a complete pantser. I hate plotting because basically all of you people, all of you I know who are, 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 are wonderful readers and you've read a lot of crime novels and you've seen a lot of crime dramas and you know there are twists and so you can recognise most of those twists pretty easily. And so therefore you also know there's got to be another twist because the first ones are going to be obvious, you know. You know and, and then you also know because, you know, you know, the first one's obvious, there's got to be a second one and you also know there's probably going to have to be a third one. Well, Josh puts about 12 <laughs> in, you know, and so I'm just astonished that he keeps, mm. he manages to find... Just all the way through, just manages to find twists that you don't see. And um, and with Val, I mean, Val is virtually every novel that I've read of Val. She's just, you know, I think a lot of writers that you read, and I'm not going to name names, but um, particularly when they've been, I'm just going to make a sound so old, been around as long as Val has. You know, they start posting it in. Do you know what I mean? They start. They they just don't write. I mean. The quality, the sustained quality of, of the books that Val produces is, is just remarkable. And she surprises me. Every time I think I, under, you know, particularly the, this with 1979, 1989, what she's done there with weaving history of those years into really interesting plots and whatnot, such a clever idea, but she just does it so well. Your check is in the post. <laughs> <laughs>
4: Hey, I, I wonder if your answer will change by day eight of the tour. <laughs> <laughs> very generous. Oh, so they're not going to say anything about me. <laughs> Next question. Yeah, no, Next question. Um, I would steal... I think from Val, I would steal... Um, she's got a very deep care for her character and you can sense it as a reader for her characters. Um, and I think that you as a reader naturally care about all the characters mm-hmm. and that's what I, um, I think... I would steal almost everything, but um, that would be the first <laughs> thing, you know. I'd take that out to the truck and then I'd come back and I'll steal some of her plots. and I'll come, No, but um, but I, I think that's true that, you know, you can... I think you can really sense when a writer does care about their characters. Um, and when they're in pain, when they do something horrible to their characters, you can sense that as well. And if it's gleeful, you know, I, I, it, it, you can kind of detect it. Um, so th- I think I'd take that from... I was, Broadly, I'd take just her characters and how well she writes character. Particularly because we're not expected to as much in crime. You know, I think in literary fiction, that's what the story is: is character. With crime, you can get away with a really gripping plot and not necessarily st- that strong characters. So I'd take that from Val. Um, I'd take from Michael. I'd, I'd take it a lot of things because I think we. I read a, a great every time a new Michael Robson book comes out. I get it about six weeks early after begging my publisher. Um, and I read it straight away and I'm always, every time I'm gobsmacked it with the fact that it's the same characters but a brand new story. Um, and I, sh- I just, I would love to be able to write, um, and this, I'll steal this from Val as well, I'd love to be able to write a series and a, and a returning character where the story is still so surprising and the access to the story is, feels very natural um, and, and they, they could all be standalones, but you're going along with these characters that you really love as well. So I think just that pure inventiveness, um, it, and I think that's the that's source of, I think, his longevity in terms of sticking with these characters for, for, for a series of books and getting one out every year. So um, I'd say that would be, the, would be the two things I'd steal. And then I'd come back for a sense of humour I think
2: um, I would, from from Michael, I would steal the emotional arc of your novels. I think you always give us that, that strong involvement um, and, and you make us want something to happen for our characters. The ones that we love, we want something good to happen for and then you kick us in the teeth. <laughs> and the ones that we despise, you want them to end badly but sometimes you give them a good way out. But there's always there's always an emotional intensity to your books. And, and I have to say, I mean, the, the last uh, Joel O'Loughlin book, I was I was in bits by the end of it i was I was weeping, literally weeping and i mean i 'm tough you know i 'm the godmother of tartan Noir for heaven's sake it 's not easy to get me to cry but, but that 's what I would take is that 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 sense of of an, an emotional arc that carries me through the story and makes me want to not put it down and read it till my eyes bleed. You know, this <laughs> is about the most embarrassing
3: thing I've ever done on
4: stage.
2: Uh, I'm, so I'm, blushing. I'm blushing. I'm blushing. So good. <laughs> <laughs> so it's
4: it's sort of like and a burning light. <laughs> You're glowing, Michael. And what, I so t-
2: sorry, I <laughs> what I would say. Sorry, you should have mentioned it. no, don't, what I would let's not move on. Josh. Let's not move on just yet. What I would steal from Josh is the way that he uses language i think you write really beautifully uh-huh. but you write really sparely you write you write without wasting words and it's clear that you've when you've written you've you've, you've stripped it back and that's the really the, the real hard part of writing is editing because once you've got to the end of that first draft you love the, you hate the book but you love the way you've written it you love so many of your sentences and you don't want to get rid of them but you've clearly gone through it with a scalpel i think and you i your writing your prose style is terrific Oh, and so I would girl. steal that from you. And the way you describe landscape, and I, mm. I think it's in cities, and I, I think you do that so well. This uh, is I great. Hate you for Keep it. this going. No. <laughs> <laughs>
4: it is uncomfortable, but it's lovely. Thank <laughs> you, I'm Sorry
1: to make it uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> that, yeah. I resent
4: it when people say nice things about me. No, no. <laughs> thank you so much, Beth. That's very kind.
1: And actually, I do think it's really important to think about what we can steal from writers. And um, you know, I think that so often we think that crime writers are not going to talk about character, are not going to talk about emotional depth. But actually, it's as yeah. important as any other. No, that's why I
3: remember in the few times of, and I feel as though you know, when I began trying to write, I you know, I would steal. When I, I look, I was a very, very poor version of John Irving. You know, I was trying to be John Irving, or and I and I often tell people, I mean. It's, it's. I'm not talking about stealing bad ideas, but if if you love a writer, then try to write like them. And but if you love more than one writer, try to write all of them at once, and eventually your style will somehow emerge from all of these things that you're trying to, to
2: yeah. do. You know? yeah, I mean, we, we all have to learn our craft as well. I mean, every writer I know that I respect has learned their craft as a reader first and foremost. Mm-hmm. And when I started out, when I started out deciding I was going to write a crime novel. I felt that my weakest area was plot, was was actually putting the story together. And I sat down with, with half a dozen novels by writers I really respected as as narrative artists if you like. Um, sort of Jane Austen, Margaret Atwood, Ruth Rendell, uh, Reginald Hill, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. And, and, and I literally took the books to bits. Sort of scene by scene, chapter by chapter, worked out how they had put the thing together. And then I, I don't think, I didn't directly try to copy them, but I tried to learn from the way they'd structured the stories that I might find a way to tell my stories in the same kind of, the same kind of way that drew the reader through. Uh, and for me that was, that was a really instructive thing before I actually sat down and started to write. Didn't mean that I didn't write myself into corners all the way through my first <laughs> attempt at a first novel, but, it, but it, over time I think I absorbed a lot of those lessons.
4: Yeah, and it's that thing. It's an endless apprenticeship, you know. Um, it's. I think the other night Val mentioned that she's still learning and still taking things in, and it's. I think that's that's a good attitude to have at any stage in your in your career, um, and it's also you know Michael's right. Like I used to, write. I used to write the most horrendous Cormac McCarthy. Fan fiction, <laughs> and that's bad. Oh, you, you know, I think we all know someone who um, has read someone with such a distinct style, and and kind of aped it so poorly that anyone who reads it cringes because you can just see it. And um, but I'm glad I went through that. I mean, there's probably still something I took from that phase. Um, and every every writer I've ever admired, of of of. They've left the kind of thumbprint on me. They've 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 changed the way I write um, for sure. Including both of these two on stage, but everyone I read at the moment I, I try to actively read, particularly in crime fiction, um, and the books I really love, I forget that I'm doing it, and then I have to go back through and unpack it all again, all over again, and and that's the joy I think of, of reading.
2: And it's about actually embracing the challenge of trying to get better with every book. Uh, I mean, it's for for me, it's every book. I learned from the book I wrote before. There are things I learned from the book I wrote before, things that I sit down and say to myself, I'm never going to do that again. <laughs> um, but also, um, I think it, that's the challenge that keeps me going. I want to do something different or fresh or, or better every time. Would you? And you know, The scariest thing I ever Sometimes writers will say to you, I'm really pleased with my new book. And I want to <laughs> say to them, you're not doing it right. Yeah, you
4: should hate it. Um, is, is there a book for both of you, is there a book... You, you would go back and change, if you could. Just change even a small thing about it.
3: Oh, the books that we've written? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you've no, written, No, it's yeah. funny, given that we're in New Zealand, um, witty Aymara, I've uh, probably not pronounced that correctly, the, the um, famous New Zealand writer, has rewritten virtually every novel at countless or sort of multiple times. They now teach at universities the different versions of the same book because it, he got... He wrote a book when he was in his twenties and in his thirties, he thought I don't like that book, so he changed it again and in his forties he changed it again. And I I don't tend to agree with that. The book is the book, it was is it is it, of its time. You know, I get there are it's funny, there are given that the I think the issue really now it's um, more to do with the sensibility of the time. There are lines in my books that I wrote seventeen years ago which now would not be considered to be particularly politically correct enough yeah so you'd go back so you could just you go back you
4: whisper into your the ear of 30 <laughs> year old Michael what do you say you say mate they're going to hate then 20 years Get that shit out <laughs>
2: You write the book, you write. I mean, it's, it's all you can do. Though if I was going back to change anything, it would be, you know, the things that people point out to you afterwards. You know, the man who wrote to me after I'd written one of the Cape Brannigans saying, I notice that you have someone driving down Oxford Road and turning right into Chester Street. However, the traffic system has been changed. And you, and you can no longer make that right turn. You have to turn left. Might, you might want to change this for the paperback. No. So you know, maybe just to, to you know prevent was one or a two, two of those <laughs> annoying letters, I might go back and change a couple of details. Or was it a
4: two-word
3: response?
2: <laughs> Do you like sex? Do you like travel? <laughs>
1: oh, thank you for that. Um, <laughs> but actually, you, you touched on the the sort of arc and, and also the, um, the the recurring characters. Um, and I heard something in another interview with you that I was really interested in speaking about how your characters can appear in different books but shouldn't be the same character, that the character must change. you know. So I think of you as writing kind of the breaking bad where each book is its own episode but the series has an arc. Um, is that something yeah, you are Well, no, I,
3: I have this maybe because I was a ghostwriter and you know, and it's one of the things you learn when you've ghostwritten someone's entire life for them that you know, we are, none of us are the same now as we were at 7 or 17 or at 27 or at 37. And you can't, if you're suddenly in your 60s writing your autobiography, suddenly make your seven-year-old self have be as wise and as, as worldly as you, you know. You have to, there's an arc to all our lives. And similarly, particularly when I think you're writing crime fiction, I mean, our protagonists and our characters go through often really dark, horrendous, you know, violent, you know, suspenseful scenes. And I don't think that they can be the same people at the end of the book as they were at the beginning. They hopefully triumph if they're the people you want to triumph, but they're going to be changed mm-hmm. by what they've experienced. And um, and I think that's a really, actually, vow, what you do with Ali between 1979 and, and 89, that idea... I mean, she's changed, you know, because she's mm-hmm. 10 years older, you
2: know. I think so. I mean, in, in the golden age of crime fiction, um, there really wasn't much character development at all. It doesn't matter what order you read the Miss Marple books in, she stays essentially the same. I mean, her, her arthritis gets a wee bit worse <laughs> towards them, but that's about it. Um, and, and same with Poirot. He never, there's never any reflection. Of all these terrible things that have happened around them, um, I mean, you never hear Miss Marple saying, "Why is it all my friends are dead or, or, or in prison?" Uh, you know, so I think, why do I keep finding bodies yeah, in the herbaceous border? Uh, and, and I think I think readers are and more sophisticated though. I mean, partly because you know they've, they've been experienced over the years um, the development of, of television serial drama, where mm-hmm. events do have an impact on characters, changing lives. And I think people expect more from us than that. They expect characters not to just shrug off the terrible things they've experienced and move forward. Um, and so that's something that you have to learn how to incorporate. And I think there comes a point, and I think you know I've reached that point with with Tony Hill and Carol Jordan, where you actually don't think you can. Reasonably put your characters through anymore. (laughs) You know, I I mean, I. This is the care
4: for your characters, I suppose.
2: It's also the care for the readers. I mean, it starts to become a point where you think this is preposterous. People are just going to go like this. Couldn't these people couldn't possibly survive like this? So I like to think of Tony and Carol now. You know, uh, spending lock- uh, lockdown in Carol's <laughs> barn on the Yorkshire Moors, walking the dog, you know, doing Scrabble, doing Wordle, you know, watching the telly, having a quiet life where they can heal. I mean,
0: it's
3: a bit like with the Jo O'Loughlin books. When I when I created the character of Joe O'Loughlin, this clinical psychologist with a brilliant mind, but a he had early-onset Parkinson. I never intended to write a series because mm-hmm. if I'd had intended to write nine books with this man, why on earth would I have given him early-onset Parkinson's? <laughs> I mean, what sort of idiot would have done that? And so I thought it was going to be a standalone. And, and, um, but I aged Joe in real time and his children aged in real time. And so nine books in sort of 10, 11 years had passed and anyone that knows anything about Parkinson's knows... That you know, I knew that physically there was a use-by date in that character. I could not keep him doing the things he was doing, and to be truthful to him and to be truthful to those sufferers and carers, who so many of them send me messages and emails and whatnot, I knew that I couldn't. So I, there was a point of time where there had to be an end to Joe O'Loughlin's sort of mm-hmm. career.
1: Mm-hmm. So you talk about the sufferers and the, and, and so on who send the emails, um, because of course this is fiction, and we have the comfort of knowing these things don't really happen, but you are all speaking to very real social and economic conditions. And, um, you know, Val, for example, in uh, uh, 1989, is talking about the AIDS, HIV-AIDS epidemic. We talk about domestic violence, about um, child abuse. Um, How do you think that the crime genre allows or blocks you from talking about those things?
2: Well, I think the crime genre has become incredibly capacious. Um, When I I started off writing crime fiction in the UK back in the mid-1980s, there was really only two kinds of crime novel. There were police procedurals and village mysteries. Mm -hmm. And with a few notable exceptions, they didn't really deal with very much outside the actual crime and the, the suspects and the solving of the crime. But I think towards the end of the 1980s, this was... Uh, a period where writers started to want to do more with the form. And also, it coincided, I think, with when people started writing novels that weren't all set in London and the home counties. So you had people like John Harvey writing about Nottingham. You had uh, Anne Cleves writing about Northumberland. Mm -hmm. You had Ian Rankin writing in Edinburgh. Martin Edwards in, in, in Liverpool. I was writing in Manchester, but writing about Scotland. And there was that sense of, because we were moving the story physically away from the, the, the conventional roots of, of, of the form. It gave us the chance to write more broadly about social conditions and, and the broader world outside. And so now we look at the crime genre and it encompasses a huge range uh, of, of sorts of novels, the uh, psychological dramas, um, c- historical fiction, all sorts of, of settings, all sorts of social groups... And I think it's fantastic, that, that, and this is one of the reasons, I think, why the genre has become so popular. Um, I'm not sure what the, the numbers are here in, in New Zealand, but certainly in the UK last year was the year when the crime genre outsold every other form of, of fiction that was, was being bought and, bought and sold and, and read in libraries. Uh, and I think part of the reason for that is that we, we, can, we can go anywhere. And part of the reason why that happens is because in the crime novel, you have the chance to write about lots of different social groups within the book. You can spread your net as wide or as tightly as you want, because you've got, you've got the, the victim and their friends and their family and their workmates. You've got the, the cops or the other investigators and their friends and their family and their workmates. You've got the forensic scientists and their circle. You've got the media who are writing about the case. And so it really offers you a huge scope to write whatever kind of book mm. you want to write. Mm. I think mm. that's such a good point. I think um, we
4: crime generally has this huge audience. you know you can write a crime novel um, or you can about social issues. you can imbue your work with your own sense of politics or whatever, and the chance are will reach more people than a literary novel would and it's always seemed to be the domain of more literary work, I think, Um, the responsibility to kind of engage in social issues. And I think given just the pure um, scope of the reach of of crime and the crime audience, I think there is a real, um, not just an opportunity but an obligation, I think, Um, because, you know, you watch any show on any of the streamers at the moment and you realise that even they're sort of engaging in these conversations, they're making sure that they're doing the right thing. Um, and you compare that to a show you watch in the 90s, You know, even one of my favourite shows, The Wire, if you watch it now, it feels dated in that um, there are these kind of negative stereotypes, and there are all sorts of things in there. Um, as much as I still love that show, it, I think there's slightly problematic, pro- problematic elements to it. So I think there is a responsibility for crime writers, and I also think readers are... Um, well, the, the most popular crime novels at the moment tend to all have these issues in them, mm-hmm. right? So I think crime readers are, have a real hunger, a real appetite for this sort of storytelling as well. Mm.
1: Do you want to add
3: anything to that? Uh, no, I, I, I agree. I think it's, you know, the whole issue, I think, is it's not about preaching a point of view. I mean, right now, the, the most successful crime novels over the last year in Australia have almost, have, have very heavily probably many of them have, have tackled domestic violence and coercive control, which is obviously a huge issue around the world. And, um, and I th- like to think that it's the, um, they have helped propel Australia to the point where we are about to get the coercive c- control laws that uh, the UK has already. And, um, because, um, it's a hu- and so without preaching, without um, writing polemics, we are just telling powerful stories that do, um, that can, you know, in with a simple story, you know, convey um, a lot of information to people and can actually move the dial. It's not what we set out to do. We set out to write a cracking story, you know, but it can move the dial.
4: Yeah. And, and it's it's impossible not to as well, I think, as writers. You know, you, you've always, even if you have uh, an editor who... Not that this ever happens but even if your editor was trying to whitewash out any of your politics, it's, you'd still find a way to get them in there. I think it's impossible to really completely divorce yourself from your work in that sense, to to remove everything about you from your work. It's, it's always going to find a way in there and it, and it strikes me that I'm always sort of writing about technology and our. Uh, you know, among other things, but there's often some uh, level of criticism about our engagement with technology and stuff like that, and it took someone else pointing this out to me for me to realise it's not conscious, it just happens to be the case, it's, you know, just the other thing was someone pointed out, um, invariably my protagonist has only got one parent, um, and I lost my mum quite young, and it's just, as someone else points it out to me, and I'm like, of course, you know, of course, because I'm sort of, it's so much easier for me to imagine a world like that, and these characters to grow up like that. So I think it's the same with the, the, the kind of any politics, for lack of a better word, or any tension, class tension, race tension, whatever um, that that might appear as social commentary is often just the, the writer's own kind of experience of the world.
2: Yeah, I'm not very good at writing siblings. You know, as an only child, mm-hmm. the only main character I've given a sibling to was 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 Carl Jordan, and I just killed off her brother. You know, <laughs> <laughs> it's too complicated. <laughs>
1: Thank you. Um, I, I, well, could... I
4: sprayed my water over the stage. Oh, well done.
1: <laughs> I, mean, I, could, I could sit and talk all night, but um, we have only an hour, and we did want to put aside some time for questions, so we have ten minutes for questions. I don't actually know if there are microphones, um, or if people can just stand up and shout a question, <laughs> or you can come to the front and I can hand a microphone. Are there any questions? Yeah. Yep. Um, so, when writing, you as a writer kind of know everything about your story, but how do you ensure that your twist is unpredictable for the reader? If you know what I mean. Shall I repeat that question? Yeah. Did people? So, uh, the the question was: um, as a writer, you know everything about your characters and about your plot, but how do you ensure that there are twists and surprises for the reader? Is that correct? Yes. Yeah.
2: Well, I think, to be honest, I don't generally know every twist and turn, I don't know the whole story, Um, and so when I start a novel I know pretty much the end I'm aiming for, and two or three crucial turning points along the way, but the other stuff will emerge as the story emerges, um, and uh, it surprises me sometimes. Um, I, you know, that, that thing when I, I, I'm thinking about something I've got a bit of a problem something, there's, you something know, I think I need to have an extra element in here what can it be and I'll go to bed at night thinking about what the extra element might be uh, and, and my wonderful friend, my subconscious does the work while I'm asleep <laughs> and then I get in the shower in the morning and then I think of, yeah that's the answer this is what I can do so uh, in that sense I suppose by surprising myself I'm, I hope I'm surprising the reader it's funny,
3: Graham Greene, one of the, my favourite Graham Greene quotes was that uh, putting words on the page is the very last part of the writing process and in fact so much as the subconscious has done it already and um, I'm not a plotter at all, I, I, I don't have any idea how the book's going to end when I begin and I, I got probably 80% through lying beside you and still didn't know who the villain was going to be um, but when it comes to you know the twists for me, I mean I my, my office is called... My children have called my office a cabana of cruelty. I used to live in a house where it was Dad's pit of despair because it was in the basement. But when I come in from my cabana of cruelty and I say to my wife, you would not believe what just happened.
4: <laughs>
3: I figure if I don't see that twist coming, if I've just suddenly thought of this scathingly brilliant twist, then the reader won't see it coming because it's, you know... Um, and... Um, But a lot of that, as Val said, it's just that that subconscious, you you just have to rely on that your subconscious will solve the problem. You will come up with those twists when you need them. Um, And to talk about the master of twists.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Um, Yeah. my my experience is very much the same as as Val and Mike way. I try to surprise myself when I'm writing. I think... When you just break it down to the fundamental parts of a twist you all you're doing is subverting a reader's expectation um, or assumption and so you can't do that until you know what the reader assumes right You can't do that until you know what their expectations are and then so much of that is just editing it back out and so m- often what start what you think is a big twist start off as a tiny little twist and then I thought wouldn't it be fun if we did this or if we if they didn't know that they are going to assume this even more. They're going to have no reason not to. So for me, it's um, so much of that heavy lifting just happens in the editing process. And I think if you write five drafts, and often aspiring writers don't want to hear that because it sounds mm-hmm. like a lot of work, but if you write a, a couple of drafts um, and you haven't got a twist, twist yet, it doesn't. I don't think that matters. I think it'll come. And I think if you really want to find a twist in there, you just... You want to find a small surprise, something small that surprises you, and then, you know, roll the roll that tiny bit of snow down the hill, and by the time it gets to the bottom, it's it's big. I must say, though, writing
2: 1979 and 1989 did give me some difficulties in terms of, of unpredictability <laughs> and twist. You know. yeah. I can't write 1989 and not have the Berlin Wall come down.
3: Yeah, yeah, there, yeah You do limit yourself there, really. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's that's like the reverse problem of of there was. Um, a particular writer whose book sold for enormous amounts of money at the at the um, Frankfurt Book Fair, and and it was on the day it was due to come out. It was called um, "The Towers of Silence," and it was about the World Trade Center. and And the front cover had the twin towers, and it was due to come out the day after the twin towers fell. And that whole book had to be pulped and 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 whatever. And um, yeah, so it's a really interesting... I mean, it's funny, I, I even... Because I write in the first person present. And so I'm setting a book in the here and now. And it won't be published for another year. And it's, it's one of the reasons that with the, uh, the first of the Evie and Cyrus books, uh, Good Girl, Bad Girl, it actually opens up March 2020, is on the first two words. And there's no mention of the pandemic in the book. Because I wrote it well before there was a pandemic. And so I can get caught out by... That was a big twist. I can get caught... Because I write First, of press. I could, yeah, between now and when our book comes out...
2: So, so, yeah, you're writing the counterfactual 2020. Yeah,
3: I am. You know, whereas, um, at least in your sense of value, you know what happened in 1989. Yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> But actually, we haven't spoken about editing. You touched on the editing. So you do a few drafts. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I do
4: a few. Um, before anyone sees it, I'll do a bunch. And then and my first ones are so horrible, so, mm-hmm. so bad. And um, I think that's pretty common, hopefully. Um, <laughs> and right. um, then, and then, yeah, I, do, I don't really let anyone in the room until either, you know, I'm going to fly through deadlines, which I don't like to do, and then I'll might bring someone in, or, um, or I'm, ha- I'm reasonably happy with it. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Do you do the same? Sort? No. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I,
2: I'm, I think one of the things that you probably agree with this, Michael, is journalism teaches you not to be precious about words, it teaches you to get it down. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it doesn't matter what awful things are going on in your own life, you can get, you can get a, a thousand words down and then you can go and fix it and make it better. Mm-hmm. And my, my practice is, uh, I mean, when I come to the point of the year when I'm writing... Which is basically January to March, April, because the weather's horrible and you don't want to go anywhere. <laughs> um, so it's it's. Um I sit down, I, I do my day's work and then the first thing I do the next day is to revise what I've done the day before and every few weeks I'll, I'll print out a sort of chunk, 50 pages, 60 pages and read it through just to check that everything's flowing properly and I've not left part of the storyline alone for too long and I haven't forgotten about this character or whatever uh, and so I proceed through that, that process till I get to the end of the book and then I print it out and I do one read through because um, I read much better on paper Mm -hmm. Uh, than I do on the screen. And then I make those corrections and I send it off to my editor. It's incredibly Uh, efficient. Well, Well, actually, I'm I'm very
3: different in a sense, mainly because I don't... I'm literally so relieved to have found an ending. (laughs) (laughs) I then have to go back and do new drafts to actually put a few clues in because I've finally chosen, I mean, I got to the end of a book called Say You're Sorry, penultimate chapter, and the, the villain could have been any one of seven people and I didn't know who it was going to be, but when I settled on who it was going to be, I figured, it again, if I didn't know, then the reader wouldn't know, when I settled on who it was going to be, then I had to go back, and so I've done as many as 12 drafts by layering it over, but I mean, but saying that, I mean, I... I mean, the reason, like, I've written this afternoon is if I go more than 24 hours without writing, I suddenly lose all faith and think that's such a shitty idea. What makes me think this is a good book? <laughs> I mean, and I lose complete faith in it. And, and you know, I don't show a single soul the book until that 11th or 12th draft is done, you know, and, um, and that'll take me close to 10 months to do. And... Um, but I, you know, most of that time I think that, you know, it is a complete load of shite. Yep. But I do realise, and I have learned, that you can polish a turd and make it shine.
2: <laughs> See, my, my, my thing is I want to get to the end of it as quickly as possible before I lose all faith in it completely. And there does come a point, I, mean, I, I always find there's a point usually about two thirds of the way through the book, where I think, this is utter garbage. Mm. Nobody's going to want to read this yep. book. I'm never going to be able to get it fixed. And, you know, I, I will have that conversation with my editor. And she'll sort of roll her eyes. I mean, I could hear her rolling her eyes down the phone line. And, and she'll say, you say this every time. Yeah, that's what Just I have get my, back to work. My agent says the same thing. I've
3: signed every one of my, my books to my agent, 17 books. And it's always signed, dear Mark, we've fooled them again. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because of that complete sort of belief. the story I love telling is Tom Keneally, when he won uh, the Booker Prize with Schindler's List... For the first time in his entire writing career had enough money because it sold something like 400,000 copies in hardback. He, he had some serious coin and he suddenly thought, okay from now on when I get to that point in writing like two thirds of the way through and I hate when I'm writing and I think it's a pile of shite, I can just put it away and I can start something else. And he then went five years without being able to finish a novel because he kept putting stuff away and not finishing it, and he realised that it was that necessity of finishing to get that next advance cheque or the delivery money that forced him to polish these books and deliver these books and he had to relearn that, so the worst thing creatively that happened to him was finally making some decent money.
1: Any other questions?
3: Yeah, yeah. Can yeah. I that question? Yeah. Yes, certainly,
1: yeah. Um, so, so that was a question for Josh, um, saying that Josh had said in the past that Maori and other indigenous literature gets grants for um, literary fiction, but not for crime. Mm. And if that's something you'd like to elaborate yeah, on? Yeah, I,
4: I don't mean grants um, necessarily. I mean we're, we're often encouraged um, by creative writing teachers and so on and so forth um, to pursue... Uh, literary fiction and and when I say this I mean historically I I like to think there is there's a moment where we're sort of viewing genre fiction um possibly as more I I don't know as more legitimate as as a as an art form I think um and I think the problem is you one I think literary fiction was considered the only vehicle to tap into um Issues, let's say, socioeconomic issues or any sort of um, issues where a marginalised voice is would be the best person to tell that story. Um, and so if literary fiction was the only vehicle for that, then the, the cultural worth of this person's perspective um, sort of belongs in this place in literary fiction. I think that was. I think there's a bit of sort of snobbery about that almost. Um, and I think there's writers, certainly uh, one that springs to mind instantly a Cosby out of the States who wrote Blacktop Wasteland and Razorblade Tears um, who's just completely busted that mould wide open I think and more and more we're seeing um, uh, he's from my hometown, I should remember his name he gave you a punamu, Michael Michael Bennett, another author who's just a great storyteller who's, who's writing a, a story that um, seems charged with this kind of colonial history and stuff and, and he's writing it in, as a crime fiction narrative um, so, it's good. and it's good, it's good, good. allegedly. I have, I'm yet to read it because I'm saying similar and I don't want to, but I will, <laughs> I will get to it. Um, and I think, so I think that's just always been, seems to be the case. And, and even if we look historically, you know, we look historically at our best... Um, Maori storytellers, and um, and you know, you even go across the ditch to Australia. You look at uh, the likes of, say, Tony Birch. Um, all of our, our our most respected and well regarded storytellers of um, First Nations or Indigenous heritage have always written sort of poetry, short stories, or literary fiction, and are always sort of pushed in that direction. I find, and and I'll, this has this was my experience as well. Um, so I think we are seeing. Uh, Slightly, and the other thing I would say on top of this is, um, crime writing has sort of been a, a vector for the working class sort of writers. If you're talented as a writer, you can. You need the money. Yeah. You're going to go into a, a generally genre that makes more money than literary fiction. Whereas, if you can afford to sort of write literary fiction, then you can go into that. Um, so I think I think there's that that element of it as well. Is um, yeah, it's just a slightly interesting moment in time where we are seeing that kind of shift towards that. But it's a really good question. It's something I do think about a lot.
2: Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I do is um, I host the New Blood panel every year at the Harrogate Crime Writing Festival. And one, one thing that has been noticeable in the last two or three years, there's been a lot more books coming through, uh, being published uh, from Indigenous writers from around the globe, really. Um, and we had Michael Bennett on the panel this year with *Better the Blood*, and I think it's a terrific book, a really good mm-hmm. book. Um, it's a good read, it's a good story, but it also has, you know, it's, it, there's there's a profound sense of, of rage in there as well. It's, and it's a two nights really, book. Yeah, you're saying it's a two nights, book. you're quite <laughs> right. So, and, and I'm I'm glad that these voices are coming through now, uh, and and genre fiction is a really good way to bring those 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 stories. Those those issues to people's notice um, because you can write a story that's that's gripping and exciting, but also has an underlying theme and underlying message. It's not why we write the books. We don't write the books as as you said. We don't write the books for the message, but the books can carry a message. Mm. Thank you.
1: Don't carry
2: them anyway.
1: Mm. Anything else? Any other questions? Yes. Like
0: to ask um, all of you please what's uh, your favourite
1: book that you've written and why? So for those who didn't hear it's a question for everybody <laughs> what is your favourite book that you've I, I, I written and an, why?
3: I think our publishers insist that you've always got to say that the book that you promoting right now is your favourite book the best book you've ever written so that's lying and, um, beside yeah, you yeah, it's, um, <laughs> it's very hard to sort of say oh no that's nowhere near as good as this book I wrote ages ago no no it's, um,
2: <laughs> it's difficult because for us as, as writers the book has a completely different um, connection in our heads to the one it has for you as readers. When you're reading the book, you're, you're, you're kind of there. If I've done my job correctly, you're in the book, and you read it, and you love it, and you have your reasons for preferring one book over another. For me, when I look at a particular book, what the, the sort of correlative in my head is what was happening in my life when I was writing that book, mm-hmm. what was going on, how I was feeling, what I was doing, And sometimes, I mean, there's there's actually one of my books I cannot even bear to pick up because my life was so shit at the time that I was writing it. My life was in the toilet. I couldn't see how anything was going to get better. And I just don't want to look at that book ever again. So for for me to say my favourite book is is, is probably for maybe reasons that wouldn't necessarily make sense to you guys.
3: Yeah. And with me, I guess, I mean, you talk about the first novel, the first novel because it. You know, triggered a bidding war at the London Book Fair on a, on a part manuscript and sort of sold into 20, la- 20 languages in 3 hours wow. changed my life so that's always going to have a special place for me but I think other than that I, I, I don't, when I begin writing a story I... The story, I have this incredibly bright, shiny thing in mind and, 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 and the gap I have to cover is between what I finished with and the really beautiful thing that I was going for and the book that I think I've come closest to taking what was in my head, the beautiful, shiny thing in my head, and I'm managing to get it on the page closer than I've ever managed before uh, is a book called Life or Death, um, which is the yeah, book that won the UK CWA Gold Dagger. But yeah, I mean that's always a special book for me. Mm. Um, It's easy for me. I think *In the
4: Clearing* is my favourite of my novels. Um, It always has been. Um, But I do like this one. I like *The Wrong Woman* now. Um, uh, No, but I mean that sincerely. I do. I do actually like this one now. And um, I I hate one of my books. I won't say which one. I've I've really gone off it. But it's sort of like your kids. You know, Um, I've only got I've only got one, and I love her. but, but I, I imagine my dad has gone
3: through having favourites of things. You <laughs> oh, know? yeah, I mean, actually, I tell people, to, that's like saying, asking what your favourite book is, is like saying, you know, do you have a favourite child? And of course you do. <laughs> 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 but it just changes on day to day which one your favourite is, you know.
1: Yeah. Well, th- thank you so much. Thank you so much to these wonderful panellists, and thank you so much to you all. Um, Before we close, I've just got one thing that they have very kindly allowed me to sort of hijack this a little bit to say that Massey University together with the library here has a regular series of readers and writers events called Off the Page. And I have left on the table there a sign-up form. If any of you are interested in attending those, we have wonderful events. The next one is Student Showcase, and after that we have the writers who are shortlisted for the um, Occam's, the Fiction Occam's. So I've left something there. You can fill out your details, and you will get information about that. So thank you for me, allowing me to do that little, that little message. And thank you to all of you for a wonderful evening. Thank you thanks, so thanks, much. Thanks, great. Thank thank you.
3: you.
0: You're listening to Manawatu People's Radio today, and you have been listening to our recording of Crime After Crime, an evening with three crime writers Val McDermott, Michael Robotham, and JP Pomare. It was hosted by the Palmerston North City Library on the 13th of September. If you would like to hear this again or share it with a friend you can find the podcast version on our website at www.npr.nz/show/specials
3: If you're enjoying this podcast in Manawa 2 you could make your very own just
0: like this one. NPR exists to help people like you tell your story or share your passion on air and online. Check out npr.nz for
3: more information. Support this show and others like it by giving a donation. For more information,
0: go to wwwmprnz forward slash donate.